Welcome to Inside Seaweed. This is the podcast where we talk about the incredible world of seaweed and how this growing industry is bringing innovation and solutions to address climate change and the environmental crisis. My guest today is Rihanna Rees. She's the coordinator of the Seaweed Academy at the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Before joining SAMS, she worked a few years in education, first in Hong Kong and then in Bangkok. She then moved to Sweden, where she received a master's degree in global environmental history from Uppsala University. Rihanna is also author of the thesis Seaweed is Sexy, the consumption and utilization of seaweed throughout British history and the marketing that surrounds it. Rihanna, welcome to Inside Seaweed. Great to have you here. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So so tell me about the Seaweed Academy. What is the Seaweed Academy? Yeah, so I mean, it was a really interesting concept uh, that I think came from the fact that the Scottish Association for Marine Sciences, uh, as it's developing its marine research we're seeing more and more about seaweed and people are getting more and more excited about seaweed and with all this research that we've got you know there's a there's a lack of understanding or, or a lack of this dissemination um, between research and industry that I think industry is really calling out for so as we start to scale up as we start to develop uh, one of the biggest gaps in all of this uh, is this understanding is this educational piece how to cultivate responsibly, how to scale up efficiently, how to bring down costs. And so while on the research side, we're trying to figure out all of these things, you know, what's the optimal stocking density, depth, um, we can package that in a form, or at least in a format that industry can tap into, utilize and understand. Uh, so I've been brought in to help understand, disseminate all this information from the research side uh, and offer a series of courses for industry, which is a really great opportunity. So when you say industry, who is who is it for really? Are we talking seaweed farmers or is it more than that? I, I think it's more than that. We've already seen a wealth of interest uh, from across the sector. Investors who want to understand more before they start investing, uh, people who are doing PhDs or masters who want to understand a little bit more about what's going on uh, in the research side. We're seeing farmers, I've got fishermen who are here, but people in the processing side who want to understand a little bit more about um, you know, what could be utilized, uh, how we could get biorefineries going. Um, so it, it's a really hot topic at the moment. It's really exciting and there's just so much buzz around it. And while these are packaged uh, as an introduction to seaweed cultivation, it's really open to everyone. So very much an introduction. Okay, um, let's use me as a hypothetical example of someone who is getting started in the seaweed industry. I'm interested, uh, I want to learn more. What are the initial considerations I should be taking into account before I decide to become a seaweed farmer or, or let's say seaweed entrepreneur in general? I think that the three biggest things that you have to focus on before you step into this uh, is whether you have the correct funding, whether you have the right time frame and whether you have the right knowledge. Those are your three key factors. Uh, it's a lot more time consuming than I think people understand. Uh, there's a lot more funding that's required 
um, than maybe initially expected. Uh, and the the gap in knowledge, you know, it's not about going and, and spreading seeds in the ocean and seeing what grows or, or just putting ropes in the water. There's a lot more to it. Um, and you're trying to mitigate risk, basically. If you're going to invest all of this money, if you're going to spend all of this time, you need to make sure that you have something at the end to show for it. Um, so that's really what, if you're looking at initial considerations, those are the three key factors that you need to focus on. Okay. Uh, do you see any of these three as a significant barrier to entry? Yeah, there's quite a few, unfortunately, and that's equally something that we're trying to at least encourage people entering the industry to be really innovative about. If, if we can give people uh, the utilities to understand exactly what the barriers to growth are, then, then they can use their innovation to try and solve these problems. Um, but one of the, the biggest ones right now is social licensing. Uh, you know, social license to operate, it's great that's being introduced. Uh, I think it was ignored for quite a long period of time. We saw the salmon industry grow um, and people being really unhappy about it. Uh, we saw other, you know, oil and gas, um, uh, the way that they've been operating, we haven't required that social license before. So it's really nice that we have that. But at the same time, uh, I think people associate any sort of maritime or aquaculture activity um, with these big slightly polluting industries uh, like salmon uh, and what we're trying to do uh, i guess as the seaweed industry as a whole um, is operate and and try and build small scale farms but if we want return on investment if we want economic sustainability uh, we need a certain scale that i think social or communities won't accept so if we're walking this fine line at the moment, I think we're going to start to see, we're going to start to see it come out in the wash a little bit here. Um, you know, what's the sweet spot where we can make an industry that will be economically, environmentally and socially sustainable in the long term. And I think that, that that's the biggest barrier. I, I can talk about all sorts of other barriers as well, processing and, but, but for me, until we can resolve that, we're going to, be in a bit of a tight spot. Okay, so mostly a, an educational barrier, maybe PR even, perception sort of uh, element. How do we get around that one? Yeah, I mean, potentially education is probably the best way to approach this, um, at least education, or at least having things backed by science. Uh, if we can get the message out there um, and, and the science to back it up, then, then I think people will listen to it. Although, you know, we've seen in the past, science doesn't always solidify people's understanding of things. Um, you know, it took a while for climate change to be understood by the wider population. So there have been some issues at the moment in terms of, or at least in recent years, in terms of mechanical harvesting. Um, you know, we did see essentially a trial by social media. Uh, we saw um, David Attenborough get involved in some of these discussions um, about how to cultivate and how we should be interacting with the environment. So it, it's just understanding uh, what can be done, what should be done, and what the science says uh, about how, how it could be done. And, and then also, how do we get that message out there? You mentioned the uh, financial aspect in a very brutal and simplistic way. How much money do I need? Oh, that's a good question. It depends completely on scale. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the bigger the farm is, the less it's going to cost you per square metre. Um, but realistically, you know, we're looking at a couple of t tens of thousands of pounds at least to get started. Um, 
uh, yeah, it depends again also which country you operate in. There's lots of differentiating factors, but yeah, tens of thousands of pounds. And you see a big difference between in terms of um, barrier to entry um, between different countries. Could European uh, seaweed farmers get a much higher barrier in terms of um, starting a farm as opposed to, I don't know, someone in the States? Well, the States has its own issues. Uh, you know, I think anybody who's tried to start up a seaweed farm in the States knows that the regulations are pretty tight. And I thought European regulations were tight um, in terms of gaining licenses. But uh, some of the wait times out there are, you know, up to 10 years, which is... Uh, pretty extreme and here you know with COVID and everything having affected things you're still waiting a year or two um, more than you might have before uh, but it, it comes down to how prepared the industry is for it um, and how much people understand it's, it's a very national industry uh, so as the regulators are trying to understand it they're a bit more apprehensive to, to give away licenses because they don't want to um, come back onto them essentially you mentioned licensing so let's let's uh, dive into that is this a long process or you, you almost already answered the question how long in advance do i need to start thinking about licensing again it depends on the area i would probably say give yourself two years uh, i would hope in two years you'd be able to resolve it um, it comes usually comes down to case by case what the issues may or may not be um, you really have to show that you've done your due diligence in terms of social licensing. Uh, your public application consultations need to show that you've listened to the community, that you've taken on board everything that they've said, um, that you're operating responsibly um, in an area where there's going to be an element of acceptance. And if you can't show that, uh, then people, the, the regulators are going to be really apprehensive to give you that license. So I, I, realistically, two years should be enough time, but there's, that's no promise by any means um, if things go wrong. And, and yeah, the, the feedback is always, if you've done everything that you need to do at the beginning, then you shouldn't have to redo it. Uh, unfortunately, no one knows exactly what they should be doing at the beginning, and it seems to change um, every other month. So, yeah, as I said, it's an ancient industry. Yeah. <laughs> With that in mind, then, will I need help? Or is this something I can do on my own? I mean, there are people who have done it on their own. Does it go back to the knowledge gap you mentioned? It comes back to the knowledge gap. This is why we've set up the Seaweed Academy to, to give people uh, as the tools or as much as we can to help them get past this, um, or at least get past those barriers. Uh, however, there are still people who have set up by themselves um, and have done a really good job. Um, but again, it comes back to that that economic sustainability there aren't any industries uh, at least in the uk at the moment who are who are really making money from seaweed um, at a level that we'd like to see uh, so with that gap with that that will that's the point that we're going to see that longevity as soon as we meet that demand and we get the routes to market then then that's when we're going to start to see real growth in the sector again on, on licensing um we sort of touched on uh, what the process might look like. Uh, it sounds like it's not just paperwork, but it's also engaging with the community, uh, having a very good understanding of uh, the, the site that I may have picked for my farm and 
how it may affect the, the community surrounding, but not only that, I guess the infrastructure, the ecosystem surrounding that, presumably. Uh, I'm just making this up on the spot. Tell, tell me if I'm, if I'm talking rubbish. Yeah, yeah, it's spot on, it's spot on. Okay. I, I'm assuming, contrary to land farming, I won't own the bit of the ocean I, I get a license for. Do I even get exclusive use? You should do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that That's what the, re the agreement will, will require, that you take into account who else is operating in the area, whether it will affect anybody else's uh, operations. Um, you know, there's a lot of creel fishermen around the west coast of Scotland. So where we are, we've got two commercial scale farms uh, near Sam's that we operate. So. Um, We've got a 36 hectare site that we've leased from Crown Estate and we've got a two hectare area uh, and in both of those we're trying different farm designs, uh, we're doing some IMTA systems which is integrated multi-trophic aquaculture which if any of your listeners uh, tuned in for Terry Chopin that's his specialty, yeah. I think he even coined the phrase. Um, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> so we're you know we're, we're trying out different species, and that's again one of those risk mitigating factors. If you can't make enough money from seaweed, at least you've got other routes to market that you could potentially profit from. Uh, so that if something goes wrong or the the market's not just quite set up yet, uh, you have other ways of making money. Um, so what's really great about about having access to those is that we get a really good insight into uh, how to use that space. Uh, but we've got exactly we've got creel fishermen operating around the area. Um, so while we've set up that farm, we can see the issues that that lie with with having such closeness in the in the aquaculture space. Um, so while we're working on that, I think other industries are working on that. Uh, how can we make co-location work, for example? Um, I know that there's a lot of people that are talking right now about wind farms uh, and reutilizing wind farms because obviously fishermen won't go in that space. They, they won't operate in that area. Um, but is that a risk then to wind farms? And um, the questions are kind of coming and going with that. So we'll, we'll see how it goes in terms of infrastructure, um, but there's potential there, I, I can see. Okay, so you mentioned uh, integrated multitrophic aquaculture. Um, is that something, going back to the licensing uh, piece, is that something I need to sort of think uh, about in advance? Do I need to uh, make it part of the license that I'm intending to not only farm seaweed, but also uh, maybe have mussels and, and oysters and scallops? Or is that something that I can maybe evolve later? Um, is it part of the package? Yeah, any activities that you partake in, you'll have to let the, the licenses know. Um, there is an argument that it might be more beneficial for your licensing process to, to have those things there. Because um, equally, the leasing organisations are all about making money back. If they lease an area to you for, your, uh, for whatever you're doing, they take a percentage of your profits um, in exchange for that. So they obviously want you to succeed and you to make more profit. Um, so that they also make more profit, you see. So it, there is a benefit to having uh, more than one activity going on to show and to demonstrate that you're bringing an economic incentive uh, to your farm and to the area. More revenue streams. Exactly. Okay, let's say I've got my license granted. What's the next thing to do? Is it time to start growing? No, then you'd probably need to go to the nursery okay. uh, or at least find someone who can propagate and grow your seed. So there's a few different ways of um, outplanting seaweed at the moment. Well, at the moment, there's, there's one. 
and that's twine because uh, it's a solid way of, of outplanting seaweed. You know, you've got a pretty high chance of it growing. Um, so you'd buy that twine, that cedar twine from a nursery uh, and not a hatchery like people like to say because you're not hatching anything. They're not coming out of eggs. It's growing on twine. <laughs> and then uh, you helically deploy it along a piece of rope uh -huh. uh, in your pre-decided farm setting and uh, and then have it there usually during the winter for it to, to grow fully. Cool. A couple of things come to mind. How do I pick the seaweed species to cultivate? Yeah, so one of the requirements is always going to be biosecurity. What's your biosecurity plan? Uh, and one of the biggest biosecurity measures is finding local endemic species. So what grows in your area already and making sure that even when you send off those samples to a, to a nursery that you take a good quality piece of seaweed from uh, the area that you're planning on growing in. Usually no more than two kilometres away is what we say or, or up to two miles away. Um, so we have a nursery facility at our site which we uh, currently propagate seaweed for our own farms and then for, for farms in the area as well. Right. Is a nursery always a an external contractor that I'll be using or is that something I can do on my own? Do I need special facilities at all? So yeah, th there's quite a lot of requirements to, to setting up a nursery. Um, so the reason why we set it up is because uh, we needed so much seaweed each year anyway. Uh, you know, we're always trialing different um, farm designs, so we need we need lots and lots of different species. Uh, we also have a cryopreservation site, so our facility, the cultural collection of algae and protozoa, where we uh, keep cryopreserved cultures for, for long periods of time. Um, so equally, if somebody has a strain or a specific strain that they need to maintain, then they can put it in, in the cryopreservation chamber. Um, so in terms of why we did it, that's that's why we did it, because we saw that, that there was not only that, but there was also a gap in the market for one. Um, there's a lot of biosecurity measures that you need. You need to make sure you have proper sterilization, UV filtration. Um, you need to have a really biosecure environment. And it can take six to eight months, really, to propagate fully and grow that cedar twine. So the, the amount of labor that you would need to get behind it, usually, unless you're cultivating a thousand tons or more each year, it probably isn't worth the cost and effort to, to set up your own seaweed nursery. No, right. um, it's one of those down the line type things, I think. What do I get from a nursery? What's the final product that I get back? So you normally get uh, a culture, um, either a propagated culture in a set, you know, if you're going to, uh, it depends where you're coming from, really. If you're going to go farm it at the site, um, deploy it at the site and cultivate it, mm -hmm. then you're going to get that twine. Uh, you'll, you'll buy that twine. We're, we're currently working on some direct binder seeding um, using what you would call it, a seaweed glue, uh, what, what we all call a seaweed glue, <laughs> to make sure that it goes straight onto the rope and that reduces some of the costs. A seaweed glue. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> so using a seaweed glue, we plant direct onto the rope so instead of having that twine uh, you mitigate some of those costs and then also you have less chance of plastics because you won't have nylon uh, in the seaweed when you cultivate it um, but the, other people might want a whole cultivation if you know if you're rewilding a, a seaweed forest or something like that then you might just buy by the uh, spores themselves all right so 
so far our slice of ocean is still out there doing nothing. How do we go about farming? Will I need a tractor? <laughs> I mean, not at the moment, but maybe down the line. I think I've down seen line. so okay. many different visions of uh, hydrogen-powered drones that travel underwater, circular farm designs. I think it's really exciting where, where it's going, but uh, we haven't really changed the way that we farm seaweed for the last hundred years, so we're still going to see the same stuff. And what is that? So you're going to have your... Uh, grid pattern. So I mean in the past we've always hand harvested, now, now we're cultivating out to sea. Let's say we've got your grid pattern or your muscle long line pattern, mm -hmm. or you, you know you've predetermined what your seaweed farm is going to look like um, in terms of the farm design based on the area, you've put in those moorings, um, then now we're just going to deploy everything, maybe in a zigzag pattern with some muscles going on, maybe in a grid pattern, something like that. Okay. So we look at a few different things when we're looking at deployment. Uh, we're looking at nitrates, nitrogen levels, we're looking at salinity, stratification, and we're looking at temperature. Uh, so th those three things there. Um, and, and we'll look for clues that, that now is the right time. We want it to be 10 degrees or below usually if we're deploying kelps, um, others for different species, but for those big brown seaweeds we want quite cool temperatures. Um, we want to make sure that there's enough nutrients that have circled around and come up from the bottom of the ocean. Um, so this usually will happen, I'd say October, end of October time, uh, up here in Scotland at least. And we'll take our we'll take our twine out when, when we can see the signs. We deploy it in our pattern uh, and then hopefully <laughs> we pray that there won't be any storm events uh, and that it'll attach really nicely to the, to the rope. So those two weeks after deployment are key. Because you mentioned a couple of uh, interesting parameters that I need to be aware of, need, I need to watch out for. The uh, nitro nitrogen, nitrate concentration, a number of other parameters, uh, stratification, I believe. These to me sound like things I should have been thinking about before. Is that right? I mean, as long as you've got, as long as you've got uh, hobo sensors or something else um, that are out at the site, but you should really be able to find this information around your area. If you have farmers, uh, okay. fishermen, uh, fish farmers around the area, they should have all this information anyway. Mm. Whether or not they want to share it with you, that's another question. <laughs> okay. um, but there are, you know, uh, there are sensors um, you can find, not for nitrogen, but uh, for salinity and for temperature. There are um, sensors from the, the, the sky satellite sensors where you can see all this information as well. So there, there are a few different, and as the technology develops, we'll start to see more and more of this stuff as well. Are, are these parameters key in uh, picking the right site as well? The, the site should be relatively universal uh, along the whole coastline. Okay. I don't think you're going to find too many parameters in terms of salinity temperature um, that are going to affect that unless you start to look at species that don't grow as you travel further south, you know, into warmer waters. Um, that that might be the, the defining area, but, you know, you're not going to go within a small stretch of, of ocean. You're not going to go from one to the other, you know. Then you, you go further, far enough apart that you, you know, it, you know, Alaria definitely grows up here and doesn't grow down there because uh, you want to be really sure of that. 
Okay, so there's no chance that I would uh, get everything ready, go out in my farm and start measuring all these different parameters and realize, oh, I picked the wrong place or I haven't got the right conditions for my farm to, to grow properly. Yeah, I, you, you would you would have a, this as part of the pre-licensing considerations. Yeah, so we, I mean, we go back to this. When, when you're going to uh, whoever your regulators are, um, they're going to say, why did you pick this spot? And there are other factors as well. So if the mooring companies will look at what the seabed is and what moorings you need to have in there, you should probably think about that too. Um, but you need to do some kind of seabed analysis uh, for that respect. You want wave rider boys. Ultimately, um, you don't know if anything will grow until you actually grow it. You know, I think that's one of our biggest phrases. You don't know until you grow. Um, so it always requires some kind of pilot line. Uh, I would always recommend putting in a pilot line first to make sure that a season before you plan on putting out your entire farm, the season before that you actually get growth, that it's successful, um, and that you know, you're not getting too many uh, biofouling organisms or, or anything like that, but that's usually down to what time of year it is and the temperature and everything else. So as long as you harvest uh, early enough, you're probably not going to have too many concerns about that. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's the, if you're looking at area, if you're looking at site selection, the best way to do it is just to go out and grow it. Go out and grow it. Okay. So let's say I've done that. When is my seaweed going to be ready for harvest? And, and also, is it only once a year? Uh, there are there are areas in the world where we've seen multiple uh, harvests within a year. Um, so ocean rainforests, up in the Faroes, they do multiple harvests, um, and it's possible up there. You, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the cold water, whether it's the lack of biofouling organisms, uh, you can coppice, which is where you cut the seaweed and let it regrow. Around here, the water gets too warm for that. You're gonna to start to see all these biofouling organisms that it depends on the quality of the seaweed, but it's not gonna be good for your seaweed. The best thing really is to, is to take it all out in one go um, and cultivate everything, take that rope, um, take everything off and reuse it next year and reseed everything next year. Uh, now, it, that is expensive. It's not efficient. It creates a huge bottleneck because then you've got, you know, 60, 70 tons of seaweed or whatever it is that you've harvested at that time uh, that you then need to process all in one go. Uh, and that, that is the, one of the biggest issues um, that seaweed, as soon as you cut it, starts to degrade. How long do I have before it goes off? It depends on the species uh, and it depends on how you're storing it. But I would say between two and 24 hours. Between two and 24 yeah yeah so certain species so that that could be quite challenging if i'm in a remote area exactly exactly um so you can see i think alaria as soon as you cut alaria it, it's just it, it, it will degrade very quickly um so there are ways to keep it fresher for longer uh keeping it in the water um maybe keeping it cool refrigerated or frozen uh will will slow down that that degradation but you've got a finite time period between when you cut it and, and what you can do to stabilize it. How long does the harvest last? Is it is it a day or two or is it a couple of weeks? It depends totally on the infrastructure that you've got. Uh, I've seen some people with 
if the boat's really set up for it, if you've got a really good pulley system, um, I've seen some mechanical harvesting, and this is one of the things that we really need to see the industry develop. Um, when I'm talking about innovation, I'm talking about stuff like this. Automation, mechanization. If we can get a mechanical harvest, um, and I'm not talking about the mechanical hand harvesting of, of Ascafilm where you have uh, basically lawn mowers on the shoreline. I'm talking about um, a system that pulls the ropes through a um, basically through a cultivator, through a harvester, uh, and takes off all the seaweed and, and does everything um, automatically. If you have to do it by hand, it can take uh, uh, quite a few days, up to a few weeks, depending on the size of your farm. Um, so if we can limit that time frame and make it shorter and also make the processing uh, much more efficient uh, or spread it out over a longer period of time, maybe by freezing it first before drying it, for example, um, then we're going to start to see the industry expand and develop and, and we'll, we'll start to see these, these issues get, these kinks get resolved, I think. So uh, let's take the example of a small farm, somebody who is on their first or second year how much seaweed are we talking about in terms of weight? I, I mean, I would say if you've got a hectare of seaweed, I reckon you're probably going to get... I've seen a few different estimates, uh, which, again, from researchers, this shows sort of where we are. Uh, I've seen estimates from 20 to 30 tonnes all the way up to 80 tonnes. And it comes down to a number of different factors. Uh, What's your stocking density? What's the distance between each of your lines? Uh, how are you cultivating it? Um, what are you growing? So, I mean, I think, I think probably 60 to 70 is a safe estimate per hectare, um, but we'll start to see that improve as uh, the research develops and as innovations start to come into play. Okay, and that could take me a couple of, couple of weeks to, to harvest. What happens now, first of all, when in the year does the harvest happen? Uh, I suppose we're talking kelp in Northern Europe, just to give a, a rough, you know, as an example. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you deploy late October, you're going to want to harvest around May. Uh, there are a couple of weeks in May, uh, depending on the weather, depending on the temperature. Might be earlier, might be later, uh, but really May, yeah. So, so approximately six months is the growing time. What happens if I leave it too long? Then you'll start to get those uh, biofouling organisms. So I'm talking about, you know, lump fish. I'm talking about bryozoans. Um, bryozoans are those kind of furry, moss-like structures that you start to find, especially on uh, dulse, palmaria palmata. You'll start to see it on there. Um, it does start to grow on kelp, and uh, it's not very pleasant. Uh, you no. know, I probably wouldn't want to eat that. <laughs> Okay, uh, we we don't want that. Let let's 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 say we've harvested everything. April, May, where do I take it? So if you've got a processing facility, you'll take it straight to your processing facility. Uh, ideally, there'll be some kind of land, uh, processing facility very close to your landing facility. So if you're taking it to um, your pontoon or whatever it is, uh, taking it off the boat, it should go straight to um, some kind of processing facility. And at that point, you will stabilise it. So that's what we call primary processing. And stabilising can be freezing. Uh, it can be drying uh, up to usually wet weight. Um, about you want, you want about 80% dry weight at that point, 80 to 90% really to stabilise it. Uh, or you can ensile it, which is where you ferment it in a some kind of container. Is there a best or better way 
to do it. What what are the what are the pros and cons of I don't know drying versus freezing versus fermentation? I, fermentation is obviously one of the cheaper options. Uh, it goes in, you let it ferment in its own way, it gets ensiled. Um, that's usually for animal feed. So in Norway, that that's what they do with a lot of their seaweed. Most of it does get ensiled and then used for animal fodder. Um, we don't really do that in this country uh, or much in Europe, but we might start to see that developing um, as, again, the industry grows. Uh, if you want to dry it, that's it's probably the better of the three in terms of what you can then do with the product. Um, it's got a very long shelf life uh, as long as you keep it dry. Um, you know, it, it's hygroscopic, so it starts to absorb water. So as soon as you put it in an area where there's uh, any humidity in the air, it's going to start taking on that water. So as long as it's sealed correctly in a dry environment, then it will last a long period of time. Um, then you've got freezing, but freezing is labor intensive. Uh, you need a lot of space. Um, you're not removing the, the water and seaweed is you know, mm. 90% water. <laughs> so if you keep it in those areas, then you end up taking a lot, up a lot more space. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, but if the market requires it to be fresh at the time of usage, then freezing is better because then you can just defrost it and then use it. What are the challenges here? Um, is it difficult to fight processing facilities? Is it expensive? Does it require loads of energy? Yeah, what, what are, you mentioned this could be a bottleneck. What are the challenges here? It's a huge bottleneck. It's expensive. It's, the energy consumption is very big um, in all of these. And also the, the market requires them in so many different ways. One company might want it dried and milled to a certain um, particle size, whereas another might want it fresh, um, another might want it frozen. Uh, and, and being able to combine all of those different routes to market, unless you've got one big buyer trying to accommodate all of those different stabilized products, essentially, uh, is one of the biggest challenges. So having access to a site or a facility that can do all of that for you would be an amazing thing. Um, there are some projects now that are starting up that are looking at how to maybe provide that for people. Um, and I think if we can see that, you know, being funded by Marine Scotland or or by the government, uh, the government's looking at infrastructure grants now. Um, and I think if we can see that resolved, then we'll, we'll be golden um, as soon as farmers know that they have a route to market and they know that they can stabilise it and store it somewhere. It'll be a lot easier to go ahead. So it's definitely not something I can do myself. I, I will need to take my freshly harvested seaweed to a processor assuming i can find one and assuming it will make sense economically yeah uh equally there are companies who who are processing themselves but they tend to have their own route to market so if you know already what you're going to do with your seaweed like i'm going to take the seaweed and i'm going to make it into a food product and this is what the food product's going to look like and i'm going to then use that seaweed beyond i think you're golden processing it yourself i think that'd be fine uh, and you know exactly what processing uh machinery you'd need and would be able to to put that into your business model if you're looking to sell on wholesale then then yeah then it gets into sketchy territory mm -hmm. i just want to paint a, a very sort of visual and practical picture for somebody very new to the industry 
how does it look like when when I've stabilized it after primary processing? Is it a liquid? Is it a powder? Is it flakes? Can could it be all of the above? Oh yeah, it could be all of the above. Uh, but primary essentially just means stabilizing. So I'm, I've dried it. I've you know I've stopped it from degrading in some way. Uh, secondary processing is what you're then talking about. So what what do people want it? The pharmaceutical industry might want the seaweed in, in a powder form, um, you know, to a certain with a certain level of iodine or something else. Um, you might have uh, you know another industry wants whole leaf dried seaweed um, or, or whole leaf frozen seaweed for then fresh fresh consumption. So it, it, it's that secondary stage. That's when you're looking at how it needs to look. Uh, the first stage is, is literally just stopping it from, from degrading in some, some respect. Let's talk about the uh, market then. I've stabilized it. Uh, let's pick one for as an example. Let's say I've dried it. I've got a nice, I'm imagining some kind of uh, powder or dry flakes. Uh, what do I do with my product at this point? I guess the first thing is, what can I do with it? And then I suppose, who is it going to buy it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's the million dollar question. Who's going to buy my seaweed? Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, there's a number of different things that you can do with it. You can go for animal feed. Uh, we've seen bioplastics. Bioplastics are taking off at the moment. A number of industries now are being um, developed. The, the fastest growing SME at the moment in the seaweed sector is... Uh, bioplastics. Uh, we're seeing yeah, nutraceuticals, food for human consumption. If we take the Seaweed for Europe report as a standard for routes to market in the future, food for human consumption is the biggest one of those portions, uh, along with animal feed. Um, and you know, there's different questions coming down to that. What what are the requirements then for animal feed? Tends to be uh, certain species of seaweed that have higher protein content. So you're looking at ulva more green seaweeds that you don't really cultivate in the same way that you cultivate kelp um, but it could be that kelp offers some lower carbon alternatives to say corn or, or something else that's coming from from south america so when when you're looking at it finding those routes to market is, is the is the biggest challenge who who wants to buy the seaweed why do they want to buy the seaweed what species do they want to buy and you really need to have the market in your mind right at the beginning of this entire process so when we again when we go back to pre-licensing, who are you going to sell it to is the first question that you should be thinking of more than anything else. Um, okay, that's a very important point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, you know, you might be putting it into uh, an ingredient for something. It might be a salt alternative. It might be a um, iodine supplement. I, you know, I don't know. There's, there's lots of different applications here. Um, it's just getting the educational piece out why would people want to buy seaweed? <laughs> I think this was a, a great introduction. I'm sure a lot of listeners will be thinking, okay, I'm in. I'm interested. I, I would hope so. I'd... <laughs> I'm either going to have bored them or put them off or made yeah. them really excited. One of the three. I hope I've made everybody really excited about the industry. We'll see. How can they do it? How can the uh, Seaweed Academy help me? So I, all of these points, all these topics that I've covered uh, do get covered in the Seaweed Academy. You, you, you know, you'll have access to researchers who'll be able to answer specific questions like about uh, nutrient cycles or, um, you know, what's the best sensor to use or uh, what, what are the considerations with uh, other marine users. So 
you know, these are the kinds of questions that if you need that hands-on approach, if you need to, to talk to people about that um, and try and resolve those problems, and this is what the Stephen Academy is there for, really. Um, I hope to offer that industry to support, which which is so needed right now. Um, and that's really what we're trying to get past here. Yeah. Are there any courses uh, available at the moment? And if so, what courses are you currently offering? Yeah, so we've already run two courses so far. We did uh, a pilot course for people in the Argyle area, and that was really positive. So we did a pilot one day course and then we did a bespoke course for Aberdeenshire Council and some of the operators in the aquaculture industry up there. Again, very positive. So uh, on the back of that, we're now offering a one day course on the 5th of October uh, for people at our in-person facility in Oban to, to just kind of talk through all of these, the, the, everything that I've talked about with you today. Um, and then we've got a one week intensive course and that's covering everything from pre-licensing considerations to blue carbon to IMTA systems, uh, really, really intensive, but, but really all encompassing, I would hope. So that's on the 29th of August for the full week as well. Fantastic. Yeah. And is there presumably there's going to be more after that one there will as long as the feedback comes back all right from those then we'll set up uh, further okay, ones and okay. then it'll be an ongoing process i hope after that where uh, we'll keep offering them on a regular basis so as i said you know in this industry you never really know where things are going to go and how things are going to change so one of the biggest things is keeping up to date with all the research and and making sure we're offering people the best value for money it's like we're part of a very very big experiment isn't it yeah exactly is there any thinking of providing maybe online courses in the future? I, I, got, I gather from what you said that these are all in person. Uh, I should probably ask where, if you haven't mentioned it. Yeah, so to start off with, they're all in person. So Sam's facility is up in Oban at the moment, which is a gorgeous part of the world at the moment. It's beautiful when it's sunny. Uh, it's not so beautiful when it's not, which is most of the time, unfortunately, in Western Scotland. Um, but, you know, you do get access to our, our sites, our facilities, um, which is one of the key things, really. Uh, and, and we're trying to bring that economic um, incentive to, to Western Scotland to begin with, and then the wider UK and, and the wider Europe and, and the, all around the world, we hope. Um, so to begin with, the courses will be in person, but as we develop them, and I'm hoping by the end of the year, we'll at least offer the one day uh, course online um, and, and be able to, to give people that information um, over Zoom or Teams or, or whatever else we need to. <laughs> There's so many different options at the moment, right? I guess there's a big benefit in actually being there in person. Presumably, as part of the uh, training, uh, there's going to be some practical sessions where people will get to see a, a, an actual farm. Or exactly. Tell me more, a bit more about that. Yeah. So, so in the one week course, you'll be able to go out to the farm. Uh, you'll be able to see the lines. Um, hopefully, there'll be some seed on those lines. It depends what time of year it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, there'll also be the opportunity to to also visit our nursery uh, facilities as well, um, and talk about what what the nursery does and uh, you know get the, the general scope of everything, uh, as well as guest lecturers and and researchers as well. Will August be a good time to have a look at the nursery? Or is it still too early? No, August. August should be the perfect time. Uh, we're going to start propagating basically from now. Um, so if you were going to deploy in October uh, with a pilot line or something else, right now is kind of your cutoff point. You want to send us your materials now so we've got enough time to make sure that it propagates and uh, that it's ready, yeah. Okay, okay. 
Rihanna, this has been a, an extremely interesting uh, introduction and I'm so grateful you could make it. Uh, do you have any final message or call to action for the audience? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, thanks so much first for having me on. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I get incredibly excited about seaweed. Uh, it is one of my big passions and um, I hope that that doesn't run out. But I, I do think that we're at a turning point right now. And I know that, again, if I talk about Thierry Chopin, he, he talked about the kelp boom of the 80s and how it came and went and, uh, and how we're at this point again. But you know, seaweed isn't a silver bullet and I agree with him in all of these respects. Uh, but I, I really do hope that at the crest of this wave, it's not going to die out and we are going to see it hockey stick up, up that way. And, and it really needs the inclusivity of, of everyone working together to, to solve these issues, to look at these problems and, and really to make it grow. And I, I think as long as we work together on all of these, um, then I think we're going to see a really great industry thrive and develop. Uh, and I hope to see Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, it's never been so needed so it's, it's going to be a, a very good time for it i'd hope so yeah fantastic thank you again rihanna it's been it's been great thank you so much for your time thanks so much Fed. take care cheers bye-bye bye-bye